Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 18th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you on this Tuesday morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. In the thick of earnings season, and I'm loving life. Yeah, thick of earnings season right now. We've been talking about the past couple of weeks, so a lot of the heavy hitters reporting uh, Thursday, I believe. Yes. Um, I think Visa, Amazon. Apple's coming up. Apple's coming up at the end of this month. Yep. So uh, we had Sherwin-Williams and Procter & Gamble report good numbers this morning. Yep. So um, I think for the most part, it's been relatively uh, surprising to the upside I for companies. I would say a positive bias as well. Which is good, which yep. is very good. Um, so yeah, so we're doing this on Tuesday morning, October 22nd, just because Matt and I are traveling later in the week. So we wanted to get an episode out to you guys, um, to fulfill our, uh, weekly episode. So as always take the first couple minutes to review performance for the month and year of the major indexes that we track. And all of this data is as of the market close on October 21st. And as always, the data is from stockcharts.com. So the S&P 500 index is up 1.01% for the month and up 19.94% for the year. The Dow, the Dow Jones is up, or excuse me, is down 0.23% uh, for the month and up 17.24% for the year. The NASDAQ is up 2.05% for the month and up 23.02% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 is up 1.78% for the month and up 16.16% for the year. The International Index, X United States, is up 1.37% for the month and up 12.20% for the year. The three-month treasury currently at 1.66%, the two-year treasury yield at 1.58%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.76%. Um, so still going through earnings season like we just talked about, and the market um, you know, seems to be upbeat about earnings so far. So we'll wait and see, as Matt and I just mentioned, on how the bigger names report over the next few weeks. Um, but you know, hopefully we still get some more positive earnings surprises, which, you know, might drive us to new all-time highs, Matt. That's right. And then, you know, we got the Fed uh, meeting next Wednesday, the announcement at 2 p.m., and I think we're going to be recording next Wednesday. Yeah. So uh, we might be able to provide some verbiage either if we do it after the after the announcement or uh, some flavor before. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, any other big news or headlines uh, from this week, Matt, that kind of caught your eye? Or? No, I mean, n nothing that we haven't been talking about the last couple of weeks. So I'm, I'm comfortable that if uh, the listeners have been consistent, there's nothing I would say that's special to, right now. Or changed. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, in that case, let's move on to articles, tweets, and research from the week that we found interesting. So, um, Matt, if you want to start off with a couple notes that you had. I will dig in, Mark. So I had a couple. Uh, first, sir, is um, something called short interest uh, relative uh, to trading history in the past year. So one factor that our practice looks at 
is people that are making uh, investments that are betting the market's going to go down. Yeah. Right? And so in uh, plain English, in our world, we call that shorting. Mm -hmm. Okay? So the amount of people that are shorting uh, the SPY, which is a popular S&P 500 index ETF, is at a 52-week low. And so the reason I want to highlight this for listeners is it could suggest the S&P index will remain in the current trading range area and that institutions are not really uh, bearish right now, okay? And the source of this uh, data is from HIS uh, Market LTD and Bloomberg on October 17th. So again, another data point indicating that, say, the big money institutions are not betting the market's going to be going down right now. Yeah. Just throwing or, it out. And, or they're not buying insurance right now that the market's going to go Another down. Another way to say it. Yeah. Excellent, Mark. I got two more for you um, that I think the listeners would appreciate. The next one has to do with the weak dollar. The reason I'm highlighting this is the dollar has been so strong relative to other currencies like the euro, the yen, over the past 12, 18 months. So I'm going to read some of my notes here to you. According to Bespoke Investment Group, on October 20th, they have highlighted how the U.S. dollar index has went from extremely overbought to extremely oversold in just 20 days, with the index falling 2%. The index is on track for its worst monthly decline mark since January of 2018. Okay, There has been um, not... Um, that much chatter surrounding, though, the dollar's decline yet um, so far this month. But a continued breakdown in the coming weeks would definitely begin to grab attention from Wall Street. Uh, Bespoke highlighted the recent outperformance of global stocks so far this month that tend to do well when the dollar is weak. But nothing extreme yet, okay? Mm -hmm. So when the dollar is weak, stocks that generate a majority of their sales outside the U.S. stand to benefit. So the longer the dollar remains weak, the better these quote-unquote multinational or international stocks tend to do better. Just throw it out there. Yeah. 20 days doesn't make a trend. Yeah. But it's interesting. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I, I'm with you that you know this could be just short-term weakness in the dollar, but I'd like to see more consistent weakness if we want to start to think that the dollar is going to begin to weaken just because it has been so strong. Yes. Um, yes. And in our internal investment committee meeting this morning, I know this was something that you were mentioning to me and Eric. Yeah. 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 So could, before we move on, can you just kind of explain, you know, what that means when the dollar's strong and the dollar's weak for people? Because I know, um, especially when I first joined the industry, this was one of the tougher things to grasp with, yep. you know, currency. So what tends to happen is a lot of commodities, especially, are denominated in U.S. dollars globally. Oil is a good example of this. Gold's another example of this. So what tends to happen is as the dollar moves up and down, it affects the price of oil just because the commodity is denominated in it. Now, the overlay is this, and this is going to be hard to explain. But as the world goes towards zero or negative interest rates, a lot of money worldwide has been moved to the U.S. They convert from euros to dollars or Japanese yen to dollars, and they've been buying our U.S. treasuries because our yields have been a lot higher. In my view, that has been artificially making the dollar strong. 
think of it on a basic supply and demand metric. You got money that's being sold in euros. They're buying American dollars. It's strengthening our currency. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are a multinational company, Mark, let's just cherry pick Apple. And you are domiciled here in the U.S., but you sell an iPhone over in Europe. You're selling it in euro terms. The problem is, is when you convert after the phone is sold back to U.S. dollars with the dollar so strong, you're getting less in your conversion. Mm -hmm. It's actually a headwind for earnings when the dollar's strong. So when the dollar's strong, more U.S. money will buy more of foreign goods. And vice correct? versa. And vice versa. So if you're a multinational company, though, doing business internationally, and when you convert back to dollars, you're getting less dollars back. Right, right. And so this has been a headwind over the last 12 or 18 months mm -hmm. as the dollar's been so strong. Right. So with the bespoke note, they're thinking, you know, if the dollar begins to weaken, then that when— That could prop up or provide a tailwind for some of these multinationals. Companies that do a lot of business overseas. And the same thing with us buying a foreign stock. So if we have an investor that goes out and buys a company that is domiciled in Europe, okay, and let's just use a fictitious return and it goes up 5% and they sell it. Well, if the dollar's been weak during that time period, when they convert back to dollars, they're gonna buy more dollars. Yeah. So they could end up making 5% on the stock in my fictitious example. And they might make 1% or 2% on the currency. But guess what? If the dollar strengthens during that time period, Mark, they could class. make 5% on the stock, but they could lose 1% or 2% on the currency exchange. Yeah. So I'm highlighting yeah. this because a weaker dollar provides a tailwind for stocks. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. No, thanks for explaining that. And I, that. I, I appreciate the follow-up yep. there. I got one more for you. This one will be a little bit quicker. Um, Argus Research, um, which is an independent uh, research company that we subscribe to, they had a note mark on October 18th. And I'm going to read this as a quote. And I quote, The current bull market is 128 months old and one of the oldest on record. The average bull market has lasted 96 months. Compared against the data set, the current bull market does not appear young, but fundamentals remain intact. Solid economic growth, interest rates that are low on a historical basis, and reasonable stock market valuations, end quote. Any comments? Yeah, I think um, I'm not a fan of judging bull markets just based on their length of time. Yep. I look more to the breakdown of things in the economy and in the markets. So um, I like that, you know, Argus pointed out that, you know, it over time it does seem pretty long, um, but, you know, fundamentals still reign, remain intact. And, you know, I can make the argument that, you know, we didn't start another secular bull market until maybe 2013, 2014, when we eclipsed the all-time highs in the markets before 07 or 08. Great point. So if you look at it from that standpoint, in terms of making new highs in the market, then it's really not that old. It's been, you know, six years. Yeah. The other thing I could actually argue is this that 07 and 08 was such a harsh down period, and you'd have to go back to the early 30s to replicate it, that you know, you're coming off such a tumultuous and harsh sell-off that it would be common sense that the data set's gonna be a little bit longer. Right, exactly, yeah, that's a great point. Okay. That's a great point. Right. So I think it's, it's, it, that's a good point to note out that, you know, I don't think, I don't 
in my personal opinion, you can't just judge a bull market based on its length because there's people that are out there and said, oh, it's one of the oldest on record. And I'm like, well, you know, that doesn't really mean anything to me. Plus, they've been saying that for three years. Yeah. Okay. Yep, exactly. Yep. I'm going to turn it back to you, Mark. Yeah. Um, so I came across an article on the website, um, Advisor Perspectives. And it was titled, What Inflation Means to You, Inside the Consumer Price Index by Jill Mislinski on October 10th. So I just found a couple interesting notes in this article that I wanted to share with everybody. Great. And um, not necessarily in direct correlation to the consumer price index, but um, there's an interesting note in here breaking down um, the change in terms of uh, the cumulative percent change in price for each category in the economy. Okay. And I just thought that it was outstanding that from 2000 until now, medical care is up just under 100% in terms of a percent change in price. That's crazy. Mm-mm. Isn't that nuts? I mean, yeah. I just think that it's, it's insane. And then compare that to apparel. And apparel since 2000 has actually experienced deflation. Oh my gosh. So, you know, since 2000, it actually is down relative to what it used to cost in Think 2000. Yeah, which is just crazy to me. So it just shows you how much, you know, you know, the medical industry is, is you know, it's just kind of baffling to look at in terms of cost. And you and I long-term know that these inflation rates in the medical side is not sustainable. Yeah, exactly. So it almost just, you know, begs to the point why this is such an important topic in you know politics and in our country in general is just because of Great you data know, the set. rising rising I mean, costs you, you can't fight that's an actual data set yeah yeah okay. exactly and the other point that i wanted to make from this article was um the college tuition uh inflation nightmare oh, this is going to be a doozy so college and tuition fees increased of approximately 170 oh percent since gosh. the year 2000 and that is almost just on like a straight up line, um, you know, and then and then they make the argument that this isn't necessarily an accurate number because it doesn't take into account scholarships and, you know, government student loans and stuff. It but still it doesn't still, negate the fact that, that education inflation exactly, is also. Out of exactly. Control. And I think I could make the argument here, Matt, I think that. What it is, is simply supply and demand. I think that there's too much money chasing college tuition and fees and, and it's driving up the it, price they're yeah. going to charge it yeah capitalism at its best exactly so if you if you take away the supply of money chasing all of the college costs then price is going to come down i think uh, hey that's a great point so i mean i also think you have a lot of these universities are charging full boat no scholarships for international students yeah you know and you know you see the full headline rate in your international student you're paying it mm mm-hmm. And um, some people have um, connected the dots that some of these universities could be very short-sighted because as time goes on, uh, people are saying that those people might not have the connections to the university as they go back to their home country. In essence, they're going to lose the alumni contributions down yeah, the road. Right. So I've heard that argument too. Right, right. So. Just but a couple, no, the, couple. Those two things aren't sustainable. Mark. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just wanted to bring those up because you know on the podcast before we've mentioned that 
you know, number one, we've talked about HSAs or having, you know, some sort Medical of effective, pre-tax savings yeah. uh, bucket of money. Exactly. Yep. And then number two, um, we've talked about 529 accounts and saving for education. Which is another just, way to save after tax dollars. Let those grow tax deferred in yeah. a 529. And if they're used for post-secondary education, they come out completely tax-free. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because a lot of people, you know, I think when it comes to investments, they worry about their own 401ks and IRAs, and they don't necessarily think of HSAs or 529s at the forefront. But, you know, just with those numbers in terms of how expensive and how quickly these costs are growing, that people need to take this into account. The other thing I'll throw out there for our regular listeners is reference a podcast from a couple ago. Mark was highlighting how a lot of HSAs allow you to invest your savings now. Yeah. It used to be, uh, and Mark talked about this, you could only have it in cash, Mm -hmm. right? And you would get a very minimal return, half a percent or less. Right. Whereas now a lot of these companies are allowing the um, savings in your um, health savings account to be invested in the stock market. Yeah. And if there's if you're going to be have a long term horizon, that I think provides a better opportunity to offset some of that inflation. Yeah. No, it's a great that's a great point. I really think that that's where the medical industry is going to shift towards in terms of you know people paying for medical costs if they don't want to pay astronomical amounts for insurance and premiums and that type of thing. Um, you know, it's the same thing when you talk about, you know, saving into an IRA or 401k and realizing that compounded growth over 20, 30, 40 years, you know, people could have a substantial amount of money in their HSAs if they make it a priority. Great point, Mark. Yeah. And that's your money. You know, that's your money. Um, Next was a tweet from um, a person called Sentiment Trader on October 16th. And this person tweeted out that the S&P 500's dividend yield is above the 10-year treasury right now. The other 40 months this happened from 1970 to present, the S&P 500 was up 95% of the time one year later. Makes sense to me. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, for more conservative money, um, you know, the higher that treasury rates are, that provides competition for these more conservative stocks. Mm-hmm. And when the S&P 500 dividend yield in general is above it, I mean, imagine when you dive down and you look at some of the more relative conservative sectors of the market and you're looking for income, it, I, that's going to provide a tailwind of demand for some of those stocks. Yeah, absolutely. And it just it just uh, backs up the point of, you know, over the last, it seems like forever, but at least since, you know, 1970s, 1980s, yields have come down over that long period of time and the stock market has risen over that long period of time. So as yields continue to come down, people are going to be searching for a higher return on your money. And I think that's why. Yeah, I mean, I'll throw it out another simple way. And I'm not going to use a specific name, but if you're looking at a 10-year um, yield on a U.S. Treasury, which you quoted as of last night, of 1.76. Uh, 10-year Treasury is 1.76. Okay. Yep. And let's say that you were looking at XYZ Company that pays a 3% yield, and you had a long-term time horizon, and you were willing to see volatility, it's tough to sit there and say, I'm going to buy this, and I'm going to sock it away for 10 years and not look at it. It's hard to sit there and go the Treasury route. Yeah. I'm just going to throw it out there. Yeah. As long as you're willing to... Um, experience the risk and volatility associated with whatever stock is in my fictitious example. Right. But you see where I'm going with this. And I think the listeners can understand why it would provide a tailwind of demand. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. 
Um, and then the next article uh, was actually, or excuse me, not article. The next tweet was a follow-up tweet to um, the market or the sentiment trader tweet okay. um, from Sean Emery on October 16th. And Sean tweeted a chart of the S&P 500, and he highlights on the chart every time the treasury, the 10-year treasury is down 34% or more over a two-year period. Which we've seen. Yep. Okay. And it looks like most of the time, the forward returns are higher on the S&P 500. Interesting. Um, so this is something that I, I really want listeners to see. So I went ahead and retweeted this on my Twitter. So nice. if you don't follow me on Twitter, it's just at Mark McEvely. That's at M-A-R-K-M-C-E-V-I-L-Y. Um, that's not a shameless plug for my to be followed on Twitter by everybody, but I and just want wrong with that. <laughs> but I want everyone to see Guys this chart as we're still working on getting um, a show notes tab up on our website. So if you want to see this chart, it's pretty interesting um, to see every time that this happened and it just recently happened. And, you know, typically it looks like forward returns tend to be pretty good over the next couple of years. I'm so, glad you highlighted it. So if you want to check that Another out, good data set, you can go to my Twitter. Um, anything else that caught your eye for the week, Matt? No, I think I'm going to leave it there, Mark. Okay. Um, so moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, it's an article uh, titled Beneficiary Planning, What You Need to Know. Um, and Matt sent me this earlier this week. And I believe this is something that eventually you'll be posting to the company Facebook page, Matt. Possibly, I will be. yes, um, yes. It's for people to check. It's already the compliance approved. I'll definitely be doing that. Okay, um, so be on the lookout for this article from the company Facebook page in the near future. Um, so the article starts out. Um, by just saying designating a beneficiary on retirement accounts is one of the most important yet one of the most frequently neglected retirement planning tasks. A beneficiary is any person or entity that an account owner chooses to receive the benefits of a retirement account in the event that the account owner dies. So Matt, we've talked about this before and properly titling beneficiaries on previous podcasts, but I think this is another good article that kind of gives people a checklist and the do's and don'ts. I love this. I'm glad we're doing this, and I would highly encourage listeners, if you need a refresher on um, uh, beneficiary planning, I'm going to post this later today. Okay. okay. Um, so number one is don't leave a beneficiary form blank and don't name your estate as the beneficiary. Um, so, you know, this would kind of deprive you know, not to harshly say it, but just to say it, you know, for what it is, this would deprive your loved ones or your heirs from inheriting your retirement assets. Yep. Um, so these assets are also subject to probate too, if there's no Benny listed, um, which is, you know, a very lengthy, hard process for loved ones or heirs that are left after, you know, the account owner dies. Yep. I mean, it provides lack of liquidity for at least a six month period. You can't touch yeah. the money. There's a lot of and negatives if, there. Yeah. And if, you know, the account holder dies and they still have creditors or they still owe they can, debts, they got the ability to go after it. They have the ability to go after that money unless yep. a beneficiary is listed. Yep. Um, so it's very, very important to list a beneficiary. Um, number two is make a beneficiary designation for each retirement account that you own. Yes. Um, so just because one beneficiary is listed, say, on your 401k doesn't mean it's implied that 
your, your IRA, IRA has the same, same Benny, thing. and yep. the, the law doesn't look at it like that. Nope. So you have to make sure that each one of your accounts has a beneficiary listed. And if it's the same person, that's fine, but it needs to be on an account-by-account account basis to do that. Absolutely. Um, number three is remember that beneficiary designations take precedence over wills. So Say it I think, again because it's important. Yeah. So remember that beneficiary designations take precedent over wills. So if the account beneficiary is a different person than someone who's listed in the wills, the beneficiary on the account will take precedence. Absolutely, it will. So it doesn't matter what's in the will on that. Whoever is listed as the beneficiary on the account, regardless of what the will said, will take ownership of that account. You know, I've seen horror scenes on this. I know you have too, Mark. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen situations where uh, someone will come to us and um, say a previous spouse has passed away and they never changed their beneficiary. So the divorced spouse ends up getting the life insurance proceeds and say that person remarried and they didn't get it. You can't go to court and be like, well, that wasn't that wasn't Robert's intention. Right. It doesn't yeah. work that way. No. Okay. No. Yep. And that'll that'll bring up our next point is number four is keep your beneficiary designations current. So again, yeah. just like Matt said, if any you know, big life events happen such as a divorce or you have kids, um, you know, we've seen situations yep. where an ex-spouse is still listed as a beneficiary and by law, they take ownership of that account. There's nothing that um, can be done. Yeah. Um, and then number five is just consider consulting a professional. Um, so talk to your attorney, uh, your CPA, your financial advisor. Um, to help you make the best choices for you and your heirs because these people have experience in dealing with this stuff and yep. especially if you're confused on some things or don't necessarily you know know who you want to leave the money to just talking to somebody like this can help you talk through things and help you understand uh, how you want your money to go and it's my intention listeners I'll have this posted to our Facebook page uh, by the end of the day mark okay five o'clock and why don't you just reiterate our tag on Facebook to make sure the listeners know. It's at Jessup Wealth. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's Jessup Wealth Management on Facebook. Okay. I apologize. And our Twitter is at Jessup Wealth. Okay. Yep. Yep. And then on LinkedIn, too, um, we post this stuff. So it's And if you Jessup just go Wealth into Management. Facebook and start typing in Jessup Wealth Management, it'll come up. Yeah. We've got a yep. pretty, Absolutely. pretty active, popular page there. Yep. Um, so that covers the financial planning topic of the week. We did have one question, Matt, from yes, Mandy. Yep. Um, and Mandy says, I have a question about investing in stock. I pay into my stock every time I get paid. Stock prices are really down right now and with my with my company stock. Okay. Would you recommend moving those shares somewhere else or should I leave it until it comes back a little bit? Also, should I stop putting my money there? Okay. So this is a question, Mandy, about <clears throat> company stock. And it sounds like you have an ongoing salary deferral saving into this. So I have two important questions for you. Question one is, as of today, how much of your liquid net worth is made up of this company stock? That's an important piece of information that Mark and I would need. Question two I have is on an ongoing basis, when we look at um, your monthly budget and so much is set aside for savings, what portion of that savings goes into this company stock? So if this is, say, the only area that you're doing any sort of savings into, 
that also kind of plays into what our recommendation would be. So there is no clear cut, this is what you should do. I think if you could follow up uh, with Mark with an email and tell us how much of your liquid net worth as of today is made up of this company stock. And the second question is what percentage of your monthly savings budget is going into this today? We would be able then to uh, provide some further uh, guidance on that. Mark, anything you want to add? Yeah, yeah. I think that that all that's great. And, um, you know, I, I think from a standpoint, when me and you look at it, Matt, when a, one position gets over 20% of someone's net worth or liquid net worth, that tends to be an issue. An issue. Um, now, there are extenuating circumstances for some companies, like, for example, management or executive and they are have restrictions required on when they to have a or, certain amount yes. of st- their net liquid net worth in that stock yes. for incentive purposes. Yes. So it also matters on a company-by-company basis. It does. So you need to understand how all that works exactly. Tax ramifications if you were to sell it. Yeah, yeah. Because when all- you can sell it, if you're restricted, if you have certain restricted w- restriction windows um, to sell it. So there's a lot of things to look at. So just make sure you understand the the policy first too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but definitely get us those numbers and we could have the conversation of, um, you know, a recommendation of what to do with it there. Yeah. And I'll just throw it out there. Mandy, beyond you, I think you brought up kind of uh, some good questions regarding company stock. If there's any other listeners out there that have um, questions or concerns or are seeking some guidance on Uh, any sort of company-related stock or stock options. We have a lot of experience in this area. And I would just encourage you to reach out, and uh, at a very minimum, we could probably point you in the right direction. I'll kind of leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Mandy. Um, So before we wrap up, Matt, I'll, as always, just pose it to you if you have anything else you wanted to hit on here before we... uh, No, I just let the listeners know next week we're probably going to record on Wednesday on the 30th. Yeah. So just throwing that out there. That's all I have. So we have more travel next week. Um, I'll be in town. I think you do. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be there. Yep. Yep. Um, So yeah, until then, uh, thank you for listening to the 18th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Uh, We hope you all have a great rest of the week and a good weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Um, Getting close to the 20th episode, Matt, so I'll just throw that out there. Maybe we'll do something special for the 20th episode. I think we need to have a guest. Yeah, maybe we'll we'll have a guest. We'll figure out the guest. Yeah. And uh, continue to share this podcast. Our uh, viewership and uh, our listener base is growing. Um, We love doing it. I think it's very informative. The feedback we're getting, Mark, is phenomenal. Yeah. So this podcast is not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And we love doing it. So as Matt said, if you have uh, like-minded family members or like-minded friends, be sure to share it with them um, because we're, you know, just trying to help as many people as we can, um, you know, through an outlet that we think is growing. So, um, you know, share around and and hopefully we'll help out some more people through this podcast. Sounds great. And we'll look forward to having you listen next Wednesday. All right. Great. Until next week, we'll talk to you all later. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. 
you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.